Hello and welcome to Cybernia, a podcast exploring science in Ireland and beyond. Brought to you in association with Discover Science and Engineering. I'm Lenny Antonelli and with me in studio is Sylvia Leatham. Coming up on the show, Marie finds out more about an EU ruling that bans the patenting of some procedures involving human embryonic stem cells. And I get up close and personal with some classic gaming consoles and other vintage gadgets at the National Computer and Communications Museum in Galway. First up on the show, a new European Court of Justice ruling has banned the patenting of some procedures that use human embryonic stem cells. Marie spoke to Stephen Sullivan, director of the Irish Stem Cell Foundation, to find out about the implications of the ban. Stephen, on October 18th, the European Court of Justice ruled that procedures involving human embryonic stem cells cannot be patented. Now, can you tell me briefly where this ruling came from? Okay, so this was taken, uh, this is a case taken by by Greenpeace, and uh, Greenpeace had previously um, taken a case to ban patents based on genes when the human genome was being um, sequenced. And ultimately, uh, what they have done this time is they brought a case saying that um, embryos, and embryos refers to everything from unfertilized eggs to embryonic stem cells, um, you cannot patent those cells in the context of, uh, you know, a, a, tre- a treatment. Um, so that actually has huge repercussions for stem cell research throughout Europe in that uh, a lot of scientists had patented their discoveries um, over the last 10 years, uh, learning, you know, they're basically learning how to make, for example, neurons uh, from uh, embryonic stem cells and trying to use those neurons to uh, alleviate you know, symptoms of Parkinson's, for example, or spinal injury. So in essence, what this does is it introduces a, um, a further complication to doing stem cell research in Europe. Uh, and the, the full effect of, of, of the ruling won't be known for some time, but it, it's true to say that I think the researchers um, are of the opinion that this actually makes stem cell research less attractive to do in Europe as opposed to Asia or America. And, you know, it's kind of uh, a lot of researchers are quite, um, I suppose, angry at, at this decision and, mm-hmm. and what it potentially will do to, to stem cell research in Europe because Europe also has this problem of, of stem cell tourism. And this is where you know, you know, patients with um, degenerative diseases or you know very uh, very serious diseases, they're being targeted through the internet by so-called scam, you know, clinics, scam clinics, basically, where you know uh, the the website will tell them that uh, they can come and get stem cells for their diabetes, or they can come and get stem cells for their um, MS or their cystic fibrosis, or their Parkinson's, or their Huntington's, or whatever. Is it possible that this ruling will actually mean that uh, stem cell tourism is going to be on the increase then? Well, I think it's already started, because um, what you're finding on the patient website, uh, on the the scam uh, clinic websites now, are basically the, the, the clinics are saying, well, you know, do you really want to wait around for uh, a, a clinical trial 
to, to validate, you know, your treatment in this kind of context where, you know, the scientists have to go through all this paperwork and, you know, they try, you know, they're basically playing off the idea that there's a treatment there already. And ultimately, you know, clinical trials are there for a very good reason in the West, because something can look promising at the beginning when you're moving out of the lab. Like, say, for example, thalidomide looked like a great wonder drug for stopping morning sickness in women. But then, mm -hmm. as we all know, like that was given to large numbers of women and there were side effects that weren't initially seen in the first patients that received the treatment. You had all these, you know, uh, deformed babies being uh, being born to these poor pregnant women. You know. Now, so is there a way around this? So it it does it does sound um, quite alarming that there there's several different future scenarios that could arise out of this ruling. Is there a way that researchers in Europe can continue to do good stem cell research? Well, this uh, ultimately the, that question is best answered by the patent lawyers in conjunction with the researchers. So we've been talking to patent lawyers um, within the foundation here, and you know there is uh, apparently some leeway. Instead of actually patenting the cells that you generate in the lab, rather you patent the technique by which you coax the uh, stem cells to become different cell types. But you know. The question then is, like, you know, if it's slightly more complicated in Europe to, to do this kind of work, like, to what degree will funding and investment move to other countries? Um, and, you know, that's a very, very serious question at the moment because, obviously, you know, research funding is, um, you know, is, is a drier pool than it would all, uh, normally be. So, um, you know, we're still trying to work that out. But, you know, I mean, if you're reading the articles in Nature and Science, there's certainly a large number of, um, you know, top quality European researchers saying that this is not a good thing for, for European science. And do you see um, a time when this ruling might be reversed um, as stem cell research progresses and perhaps bioethical issues get ironed out? Um, I don't know. Uh, I... I I honestly don't know. Um, I think, you know, obviously what it means, the most important repercussions of this is that, like, for example, clinical trials will move to Asia and America, and then, you know, Irish patients who want to take part in legitimate stem cell research will need even more money than they do already to actually participate in a clinical trial. And, that, and I think that's, that's quite sad, actually, because, mm -hmm. you know, uh, science should be ultimately fulfilling human need and um, you know we the patients should be able to participate in legitimate stem cell research in embryonic stem cell research so you know it's important to point out that you know not all stem cells are the same and so for example you know for some uh, human conditions um, there is no endogenous or adult stem cell population present so their embryonic stem cells uh, are needed so, you know, like, well, you know, this, this particular decision pertains to embryonic uh, stem cells. You know, there are adult stem cells and the adult stem cells clinical trials will still proceed. But it's important to realize that adult stem cells uh, by themselves are not as powerful as adult stem cells alongside embryonic mm -hmm. stem cells. How does it work with um, stem cell research here in Ireland? Do they benefit from what's going on here? Or... Um, indeed, is there any legislation at all um, for stem cell research in Ireland? Well, I mean, the, with the adult stem cells, um, ultimately the legislature is um, 
you know, it, it, while it doesn't directly uh, concern stem cells, it provides enough uh, framework for, you know, basic research to be translated. Uh, and there are there are some uh, centres uh, in Ireland that are working on early stage uh, preclinical and clinical trials. But ultimately, the important thing is here is that um, in order to move from the clinic or from, from the lab to the clinic, large amounts of money must be generated because, you know, in order to validate a new stem cell treatment, you need large amounts of money because you have to, you know, take more and more uh, larger numbers of patients and you have to apply in a very controlled way the new treatment and assess toxicity and, and you know, assess uh, it's you know it's effectiveness against the patient's condition and that has to be done in a very controlled way and then obviously you have to follow up on the patients uh, long term after they receive the treatment so like I mean if you're if you're a person who's considering going for a stem cell treatment you shouldn't be asked for large amounts of money up front uh, for for an experimental mm -hmm. protocol you know you shouldn't be told that you know there's no risk involved you shouldn't be told that you know, the stem cells that they have will be able to cure physiologically different diseases. Like, for example, they'll be able to cure your Parkinson's and your diabetes, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and ultimately, you shouldn't have to go to a jurisdiction where, you know, law is weak pertaining to, you know, medical research and new treatments. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's one of the key things that the, the Irish Stem Cell Foundation is trying to do, is trying to educate people about the basic biology. Because if you at least have the basic biology, you'll be able to spot a scam easier. Mm -hmm. One of the other things that we're doing is we're asking, um, you know, the Department of Education to put, you know, one or two pages of basic uh, stem cell biology on, uh, you know, in the Leaving Cert and in the Junior Cert or whatever its new equivalent is now. In that light, Stephen, the um, the court had said as part of the ruling that ethics takes priority over commercial interests. Do you think that's an oversimplification of what happened there? Well, you know, ultimately, it's important to realise that money has to come from somewhere in mm -hmm. order to push the field forward. Now, you know, obviously, you can you don't want uh, companies earning so much that it's at the detriment to the patient. But at the same time, then, an outright ban in this way, it doesn't help either. I mean, there has to be a balance struck between, you know, what the research can produce and what can be translated from the research and ultimately what the patient's needs are. Because, you know, if you're to be just, you know, looking at this economically, there's a lot of human need out there to, you know, find new cures and treatments for a, lot, a range of human diseases and, you know, stem cell research offers um, tools by which that can be done. So, you know, you know, I think fundamentalist or extreme uh, bans or, you know, are, are not good because ultimately, you know, it, 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 I think it will scare investors away from Europe. For more information on stem cell research in Ireland, visit irishstemcellfoundation.org or follow the group on Twitter at irishstemcell. Now, what can kids learn about modern-day computer programming skills from vintage games like Pac-Man and Space Invaders? I found out recently when I visited the new National Computer and Communications Museum in Galway and spoke to its curator, Brendan Smith. 
I've been hearing some strange noises here. We're over at the, the retro gaming exhibit. The retro Tell gaming us about exhibit. this. Now, this, we had a fantastic retro gaming night here on, 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 on Friday night, and every month we have retro gaming. So we have the great arcade machines and consoles of the, of the 70s and early 80s playing uh, Space Invaders, playing Pac-Man, playing sp- um, Asteroids, and some of the makes are Atari, uh, Nintendo, um, what do we have here now, uh, Sega. And I always tell young people, playing games is fantastically innovative, creative, if you can do the programming. So we bring children here, we let them play the games, and then we show them how those games are created, and then we tell them to create their own games. And in Galway today, and in Dublin, we are becoming a centre of gaming technology. It's one of the growth areas. Young people use Facebook, and a lot of the stuff they use now are the interactive games type of technology. So I believe it is essential that computer programming should become a life skill. It should be part of this school curriculum, which is not at the moment. But um, institutes like Derry, working with um, uh, groups like the Gowie Education Centre and Hewlett Parker are starting to bring it into schools in the West Coast. And there's others doing it in, like Lero down in, in, in Limerick and others in Dublin, you know. But it is a life skill. It's not been taught, which is, is wrong. And it has to be taught. Otherwise, we can never develop a knowledge-based economy if we don't teach our young people the skills. Teaching programming at third level is too late. You know, mathematics, it's too late. Um, we need to get them to have those skills and awareness of maths and so on at um, a primary and post-primary level. And that's what we're doing. So the gaming is not an end in itself. It's a process of introduction to creativity in the area of IT. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, one thing I was curious about here was this exhibit on uh, the portable computers. Um, I saw here uh, the compact portable from 1982. This yeah. is this is supposed to be a portable computer. It's, yeah. It looks far bigger than most uh, normal yeah. computers you would buy today. Osborne was the first uh, company to bring out um, computing, uh, sorry, um, what we would call portable computers, now the, the laptops. We knew it, and then Compaq, a new company had set up, uh, followed suit, and this is from uh, 1982. Now, <laughs> it's very heavy, and it's like a luggage case, as you can see. Absolutely. It's handled. It's, 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 oh, it's got a leather leather handle on one side to carry around yes so th- that was really the only sense it was portable and that it had, it had a handle uh, on yeah, it yeah exactly the handle but you could bring it to you like journalists would use it on their travel in from their hotel room they would be um, uh, storing their information here on, 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 a, on a floppy drive and this would be their screen this would be their input unit you know then five years later we, you can see it's getting smaller now the ergonomics are, are, are quite attractive compared to the old heavy one and this was known in America as the lunchbox this is a bit smaller still, yeah, still, 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 still still heavy huge yeah, by today's standards exactly. but, but it was like your typical uh, American the worker, three. known as the, as, the, as, as, as the lunchbox. And then by 89, you had the structure that we know today as the laptop. And this, unlike the other earlier models, they had to be powered by, uh, you know, the, the mains. This one is powered by batteries. Okay, so you would carry around a battery pack with the laptop to power uh, it. Absolutely. Now, this is a very interesting model. What's itself. this? This is the Minitel compu- uh, terminal. The first popular interactive online service, absolutely. it says here. Yeah, it was. It was well 10 years before the World Wide Web was developed. In the early 80s, this came out in 82. It uh, what the, uh, was developed by the uh, French telephony company. They gave out those free 
to homes. This is like a little, uh, it's basically German. a box with a, a, box. a monitor and a small keyboard. Absolutely. And you, up. you plugged into your telef- uh, telephone line and you, you entered online databases. So people used this to do, in the early 80s, remember, people in France, they used this to uh, make holidays. Uh, travel bookings, uh, to get online shopping, they checked their bank account, all that that we associate with the World Wide Web. This was being done in the 80s to a limited degree. The British developed one, a similar one called Prestel, you know, and Ireland Minitel came to, to, uh, to Ireland back in the mid 80s or so. Uh, a number of companies got together and put their stuff that they were accessible over um, uh, the, uh, the telephone line. But obviously the World Wide Web passed this by. But even today, this is still being used um, in France and this month they are deciding whether to close down the whole Minitel service. So they're still in making France. these? Uh, not so much making them, but the but service is still there. The database, online database services there, you know. But it had its place, you know. So people think, oh yeah, the World Wide Web was where it all started, it didn't. And even on, on the digital the computers that we talked about earlier, that were made in Galway from the 70s to the early 90s. In 79, 80, digital networked the second level schools together, you know. And people could share information and, and send information, you know. Um, I saw some uh, some old mobile phones here, um, yes, yes. and I mean the phrase the phrase "brick" is literally true of this, this original Motorola here. This is actually a brick. Yeah, a brick. Size. This is what Motorola, where the company um, with the the, the, the the guy within a Motorola was inspired by Star Trek. Every yuppie in the eighties had to have one of this. It was cool to be seen. Um, having one of these and talking out loud in a train or whatever, you know, or down the street. So this was the symbol of yuppieism back in people that were uh, young and upwardly mobile going places, you know. And you can see the shape of it there. If you were carrying one of those in one of your compact portables, <laughs> you'd be fairly way down, you wouldn't you? You'd be fairly way, way down, exactly, you know. And then we have the earlier phones, you can see the handpiece and so on. We have these, these were made um, by Northern Telecom that had a big manufacturing base here in Galway. And recently I had, had a, uh, a second level group of students came in and you can see the old ring faces to it and the the young guy he had never seen this he's used to the touch screens so he picked it up didn't know how to use and he went doing 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 he's pressing the the, the dial <laughs> yeah rather than uh, turning it you know because obviously he, he he didn't know that or was used to that you know but we always say that young people where for a hundred years of modern communication technology from the work of Marconi with radio, that it was radio that made um, uh, teenage culture, youth culture happen. Because at the end of World War I, um, people, particularly in Western Europe, uh, young people in Western Europe and, and in America had something that was a new phenomenon. It was called pocket money. Because during World War I, you had the 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 mother the the female working in the factories you had the men out in the, in the armies um, in the armed forces so there was a, a two source income coming into a lot of families so young people for the first time had pocket money and they started to spend that pocket money for things that excited them some of them did um, sent out through the post for stamps and they did stamp collection others bought this new phenomenon called the uh, the radio and they, they got them in kit form and they started putting them together and then they started to communicate with each other, you know, transmitter to receiver. And then some um, uh, entrepreneurs set up radio stations for young people. And out of that, the first youth culture happened, teenage culture. We had the development of, of um, the jazz age. So you had people, young people of a certain age, they were browned off with all the bad things that happened with World War One, with all the, 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 the actual culture that was represented by parents that led to so much debt. So they started, uh, particularly in American Western Europe, they had different styles of dress, different styles of, of, um, uh, of hairstyle, they had different styles of music, they had a different attitude towards life, and that was all promoted by communication technology. 
technology, the radio. So some young guy in Paris and in London and in New York could listen to the same type of music over the airways away from their parents, you know. And that continued right through with the jukebox, with the development of the radio. And I saw an, an original transistor radio yeah. here, which is the first first pocket radio, essentially. Yeah. And look at the name on it. Sony. Sony. And so they've been around with us for a long time. Japanese company thought Sony would be a better name not too long after World War II going into the American market and into the European market. And this was from 1950s? Yeah, yeah, from the 50s, in the late 50s. Now, this was a revolution for young people because it was a wireless pocket radio powered by batteries. So young people could listen to their music away from the parents. They didn't have to be in a house. They could be in a barn. They could be in a field. They could be in a beach listening to um, such um, promoters of, of devil's music like Radio Luxembourg. And you can see it's about the same size as your iPhone. It has a little stand, very handy, and it had a built-in alarm clock. So, oh, God, it's so late, I have to be back before it's nine o'clock. The parents would be looking for me and sneak in the back window, you know. And how so was it powered? It was powered by batteries. Back in 1944, there was the world's first pop concert where twi- in New York where 22,000 young screaming girls, known as Bobby Sox's Custard Style Address, were told to go to New York to see this pop star at the world's first pop concert as it turned out and like Facebook today the message went out then it was on the on, on the teenage radio stations and the, uh, the American uh, New York police force couldn't handle these screaming girls and they were batting charge after batting charge after batting charge really? against them and they were the Bobby Soxes and that pop star and uh, we call him the world's first uh, pop star was Frank Sinatra you know so again wow. the, the communication technology bringing you together um, has been with us a long time and if we go here then the, the, the Philips um, brought out the uh, the first micro cassette in the 1970s this is what we know today just as, as the regular cassette but I suppose as, as, for the time it was it was oh it's totally revolution tiny. yeah but for young people it meant that you not only listened to music like you would in a record but you could record your own music in a garage or in a flat and then make copies and send them out to other people so it's sort of analogous today, I suppose, to how pe- how young people see the internet as a, a way for them to Absolutely. be creative and, and to record their Absolutely. own stuff or Put use their, yeah. their iMovie or their, their garage YouTube band or whatever. Or whatever. Or YouTube, Absolutely. exactly. But exactly. This, this provided the same thing. This did the same thing. And it, it led to a whole revolution in music with punk and so on back in the 70s. So that was Philips. Before that, it was the Germans that really developed the magnetic tape back in the 1930s. And... Then in the uh, the later part of the 70s, you had the Walkman, the, the, Walkman, the, the famous, classic again, Walkman. And the company's name is? Sony. So they've been around a lot. And you, you, you meant you could go jogging, do health walking or whatever, listen to the music that you actually wrote yourself, played yourself, or just uh, bought, bought an album. And you can check out the first part of that tour by visiting cybernia.ie and downloading episode 18. Now we come to a new segment of the show called Origin Stories where we ask people working in science to think back to what first sparked their interest in the subject. This week, Sylvia spoke to Professor John Boland, the head of Trinity College Nanoscience Research Institute, CRON. So I'm talking to Professor John Boland, who's the head of the CRAN Research Institute. Uh, It's an SFI-funded research institute based in Trinity College, Dublin. And he's going to tell me very briefly about his uh, career to date. So, John, how did you actually get interested in in science in the first place? What, What were you like as a school student? Well, unfortunately, I was a very poor student. And in fact, um, it's all a complete accident. My whole career has been an accident. Um, it was a rainy day. I was supposed to meet my father after after he finished work, but unfortunately he got delayed and I was locked outside his office. And so I made my way across the road to the Phippsburg Library. How old were you at this point? I was uh, 15 at this point. I just finished my intercert. Um, and so it wasn't clear what I was going to do. Um, 
but it was the summer and it was raining, you know, big surprise in Dublin. And so I went into the library and I was bumbling around and I found uh, a chemistry book and I just checked it out. And um, basically that chemistry book changed my life because I read it over the, I read it over the summer and uh, it convinced me that actually that what I was being taught actually made sense, though it was completely making no sense prior to the summer. So I decided I really like chemistry. And bizarrely enough, then actually things like maths began to make sense, and then physics became interesting. And so um, I went from there. But had it not rained, I'm not sure where I'd be today. Can you remember the name of the book? Actually, I have the book. <laughs> I, but I don't remember the name of it, but I have the book sitting on my, on my desk still, actually. Wow. Yes. So then what happened? Did you, had, did you go to university then? Yes, I, um, I was the first person in my, my family to go to university. I went to University College Dublin. And as things would happen, you know, you go into university and you think that, well, you're, you're just one individual in a large class. But, you know, what you find out is that actually if you work and you understand and enjoy what you're doing, um, you find that you're doing very well in the class. And I either made first or second every year I was in university. And then it just became obvious that this was something that I wanted to do. But I would never have guessed that a couple of years before. Okay. And then briefly, can you talk me through then your career after university? Well, it was a, once again, it was a complete mix-up because actually when I was in um, fourth year in university, I said I was going to do a PhD, which was, I couldn't even fathom the notion of doing a PhD, but I met people as demonstrators who were teaching me in lab and they were doing PhDs. So I thought, well, I'll take a crack at that. And then I decided that actually maybe I might look to do a PhD overseas. And so I applied to a lot of different universities um, in Canada and in the U.S. And um, actually what happened was, as often happens in Ireland, there was a mail strike. And, um, and unfortunately, I hadn't realized that I was being accepted by lots of universities, but I was getting no mail. So one day sitting in the library, I got a call from Caltech which now is ranked the number one university in the world. It was always a very highly ranked university. And they asked me why I hadn't responded to their, to their letters. And I said, well, I hadn't gotten any mail. And they explained that actually um, that they would like me to come to Caltech, but I hadn't done a particular exam. And I told them that I, I couldn't afford to do the exam and that actually I only applied to them because they had no application fee. <laughs> and as it turned out, they said, well, they would waive the, waive the exam if I come in the next couple of months. So. Wow. That's why I ended up at Caltech. So. Okay. And from Caltech, how did you end up here at Cran, in a nutshell? Well, well that's even a longer story, <laughs> uh, because actually um, I went from Caltech, um, and then I left Caltech, and I worked for IBM in research in Yorktown Heights for 10 years. Um, and I left IBM, and I worked um, as a chair professor at UNC in Chapel Hill in North Carolina for eight years. And I was happily biding my time there, thinking I would stay there the rest of my career, but then Science Foundation Ireland appeared in the scene here and they started offering very attractive grants for people to turn back to Ireland. So I was lucky enough to get one of those grants and I came back here and the rest, as I say, is history. Now that's almost it for this week's show, but we've just got time for Sylvia to tell us about some science events that are coming up. That's right. Um, Trina compiled these for me. Handily. Thanks, Trina. Uh, so on Sunday, the 20th of November, there's a morning of bird watching for beginners at Dublin Zoo. You can learn about plumage and habitats, as well as how to spot the birds themselves. The event is free for zoo pass holders and children, or €10 Euro for adults without passes. And for further information and bookings, email education at dublinzoo.ie. 
On Saturday, the 26th of November, Daniel Bradley will present a talk about the ancestral link between polar bears and the extinct Irish brown bear. And we actually had Dan Bradley on our show a while back talking about this subject. So if you go to cybernia.ie and and have a search around, you you can listen back to that. Um, Anyway, this uh, lecture is free and begins at 12pm in the Natural History Museum in Dublin. And for more details, you can visit museum.ie. Finally, on Wednesday the 30th of November, Christina Campbell will discuss the conservation of rare Irish mosses at the Botanic Gardens in Dublin. Many of these tiny plants grow in specialised and threatened habitats around Ireland. Meet at the Visitor Centre at 3pm and see botanicgardens.ie for more information. Thanks for that, Sylvia. That's all for this week's show. You can find us online at cybernia.ie, that's S-C-I b-e-r-n-i-a dot i-e or you can download the latest episode from iTunes we're also on facebook.com slash cybernia and at twitter.com slash cybernia or you can email us at podcast at cybernia dot i-e thanks to all our contributors this week thanks to our producer Gavin thanks to Near FM and thanks to you for listening (laughs) 